Well, it all began at, at Christmas two years ago when my daughter was four years old. And um, it was the first time that she had ever asked about what, it, what, what did this holiday mean. And so I, I explained to her that this was the celebrating the birth of, uh, of Jesus. And she wanted to know more about that. And we went out and bought a kid's Bible and had these readings at night. She loved them, wanted to know everything about Jesus. Um, so we read a lot about his birth and about his teaching. And um, she would ask constantly what that, what that phrase was. And I would explain to her that it was, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And we would talk about those old words and what that all meant, you know. Um, and then one day we were driving past a, a big church and out front was an enormous crucifix. She said, who is that? And I guess I'd never really told that part of the story. <laughs> so I had to sort of, yeah, oh, well, that's, that's Jesus. And I forgot to tell you the ending. Yeah, well, you know, um, he, he ran afoul of the Roman uh, government. You know, this message that he had was so radical and unnerving to the prevailing authorities of the time that they had to kill him. They, they came to the conclusion that he would have to die. That message was too troublesome. So it was about a month later after that Christmas, we'd gone through the whole, whole story of what Christmas meant. And, and it was mid-January, and her preschool uh, celebrates the same holidays as the local schools. So Martin Luther King Day was off. So I knocked off work that day, and I decided we'd play, and I'd take her out to lunch. And uh, we were sitting in there, and right on the table where we happened to plop down was the art section of the local newspaper. And there, big as life, was a huge drawing by, by like a 10-year-old kid in the local schools of Martin Luther King. And uh, she said, who's that? And I said, well, as it happens, that's Martin Luther King, and he's why you're not in school today. So we're celebrating his, his birthday. This is the day we celebrate his life. And uh, she said, so who was he? And I said, well, he was, a, he was a preacher. And she looks up at me and goes, for Jesus? And I said, yeah, yeah, actually he was. But, um, but there, was, there was another thing that he was really famous for, which is that um, he had a message you know, and you're trying to say this to a four-year-old. It's very, you know, this is the first time they ever hear anything. So you're just very careful about how you phrase everything. So, so I said, you know, uh, well, yeah, he, he was a preacher and he, he had a message. And she said, what was his message? And I said, well, he said that you should treat everybody the same no matter what they look like. And she thought about that for a minute. And she said, well, that's what Jesus said. And I said, yeah, I guess it is. You know, I never thought of it that way, but yeah. I and mean, that is sort of like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And uh, she thought for a minute and looked up at me and said, did they kill him too?
Oh, man, don't you love it when a child can just kind of name something like that? You ever been asked a question by your kid or by a kid, and you're like, I never, I never quite put that together. I, I love that clip and that reflection for a number of reasons. One is, and as Corey mentioned, just that, that beautiful reminder that as we do celebrate the legacy and the life of Dr. Martin Luther King, there's an origin, there's a source, namely Jesus. And it was the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. I also love that clip because of, of this, like, this curiosity of a child that provokes a father to think differently about things he's always known. You know what I mean? Like, like, and I think so many of us actually have our spiritual journey provoked in a new way when our kids start asking us questions that we're not quite sure how, how to answer. I, th- I think a lot of us, we, 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 we grew up maybe, maybe in church, maybe not, and we go to college or not, and we party our brains out, and we climb the corporate ladder, and we get to this place where we think we, we've gotten to everything we want, but we feel hollow inside, and then our kids start asking questions that we're not quite sure that exactly how, how to answer. And so you see this actual beautiful discovery or rediscovery of this dad by the nature of his, of his daughter's questions. And he doesn't get it all right. He gets partially right. I think he answers very thoughtfully, but gets some of the theology, some of the historicity a little bit, a little bit off. But I love that it's the curiosity of this little four-year-old girl that asks a question that you're not quite sure how you can answer. We're in this series called Walk This Way. We've been walking through the letter in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul called Ephesians, and we're riding around Ephesians 4, Ephesians 5, but right in the center of it all is what it has inspired this entire kind of title of the series, title or thrust of the series, and it's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. What does it mean to walk this way, in the way of God's deep heart, in the way of love? I got, um, I got a question posed to me last week by, by my 10-year-old daughter, and you're not going to like it. She asked this, Dad, what do you think God really thinks about football? So, I... Uh, my first instinct was like, oh, he loves football. Of course he loves football because God loves everything that I love and anything that I'm excited about, God would be excited about, right? That was what was stirring in me. And then I did one of those. And then I just didn't answer and then refused to think about it and then moved, moved on. <laughs> Are you guys nervous? Like, where is this going right now? How many of you went to church this morning just to check the box with some sort of twisted thought like if I go to church, the Chiefs might have a better chance of winning today? (laughs) Come on, raise it proud. Man, woo, it runs deep, doesn't it? Yes, yes it does. Football, by the way, this is not a uh, commentary on football, but I will leverage it to make this point that if we are to walk in the way of love, we have to address the question of power. We have to address and go to a deeper place of what you could call spiritual power. That's the headline of today. If you think about football for a second, it is all about controlling the line of scrimmage. It's all about dominating the time of possession. It's all about controlling yards gained or lost. It's, of course, about scoring the most points. In essence, it's about dominating the other. And we love it. I know we love it. But we look at the larger kind of picture of our world and of our life, and isn't that how life works 
here on earth. Nation dominating nation, tribe dominating tribe, ethnicity dominating ethnicity, subgroup within ethnicity dominating subgroup of other ethnicity. We see it in our politics, the governmental shutdown right now today. Is that not a power grab? We see it in ecology. We see it in our economy. Now, I, I've been, um, I, I'm just like this like freak love of, I'm like a hack entrepreneur. I just love anything about starting new stuff. And, and so I've been getting or re-getting into Shark Tank. And, um, and my daughters are starting to watch it with me. And I'm not sure it's a good thing because the Shark Tank is like all about these four men and women who are really wealthy and proud of how greedy they are. And it's all about whether they invest and will they, you know, throw some VC venture capital money into this great product. I just love it. My daughter's loving it. But you step back and you look through this power kind of question uh, lens and, and the four of them are powering up on one another and they're leveraging their power against the poor person who's doing this really cheesy pitch of their product or, or their company. And you just step back and you go, and actually every facet of our society, in our school systems, at the level of our school board, at the level of the PTA power play, all the way down to the, you know, to the, to the sandbox, all the way down to the playground. I was reading a, a commentator who said, you know, all we need to do in order to like think better about power is watch little kids because little kids are, you know, they just play with one another. They're not jockeying for power. They're not trying to dominate the other. I'm like, yeah, what? Do you have children? This runs so stinking deep. And there's, there's power play in our relationships. Between man and woman, we see that today. In the Me Too movement, we see that today. In our own interactions and in our play, we see it in our most sacred relationships. We see it in sibling relationships. We see it in coworker relationships. Would you agree that power is a reality and a dominant underlining thing in just about everything that we do today? Would you agree with that? So then, how can we love? Think about what love is in its purest essence. And so how do we leverage power for the sake of love? The great writer, one of my favorites, is a Quaker, Richard Foster. In his book, it, it used to be called, it was awesome, Money, Sex, and Power is what it's called. Then some Christian publisher got a hold of it. Now it's called The Challenge of the Disciplined Life. I don't know, just don't get me started. Anyhow, it's an awesome book. It's an awesome book. Here's what he says about power. Power can destroy or create. The power that destroys demands, look at this, ascendancy. It demands total control. It destroys relationship. How many of you would say, if you're honest about the divorce that you still suffer from, about the abandonment that you still feel, how much of it? was this some form of play on power. It destroys trust. It destroys dialogue. It destroys integrity. And this is true whether we look through the macrocosm of human history or the microcosm of our own personal histories. Is it true for you? Well, if we trace it back, 
to human history to the very beginning of time when God created heavens, earth, sky, birds, soil, the whole thing, and he called it good. He called it very good. And as the climax of his creation, he created you and me, human beings. And there was this beautiful picture. I've done this before. I call it hand puppets. But he created Adam and Eve. He created you and me with this amazing, beautiful openness accessibility, vulnerability to one another. We were naked before one another and without shame. The scriptures so beautifully, truthfully, poetically describes this picture of two human beings, right? And, and, and they, they, they are experiencing this intimacy and then they are called to this adventure called dominion to go and steward the earth. It's called the creation mandate. And so you have these two beautiful human beings that now are on this adventure together. And as they're in this, the enemy of God, Satan, in the form of a serpent comes up and asks this question. Like why would God hold you back was really the question. Because the premise was, I want you to flourish. I want you to move in all freedom. I, that, like, it's all yours. I'm calling you to join me in the stewardship of it, of it all. If there's just one thing, and I'm going to give you the freedom to choose. There's this one tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're not to eat from that fruit. And then the enemy of God slithers on up and asks the question, why would God say that? Two things. One, because you, you, you can't trust God. Here's what it says in Genesis chapter three, verse five. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. He doesn't want that. You can't trust God. And then look at this. Here's the power play. And you will be like God. See, if you eat from this fruit, you will be like God. This is the first example of where we see a power play happen. There is this desire for ascendancy, this something begins, this dissatisfaction of where I am, and I want to try to get higher and higher to become like God. It's the root of it all. And they buy into it, and they sell out to it. And all of a sudden, where they were like this, and then they were like this, there's shame, there's blame, there's hiding, there's fear, there's finger pointing, there's, there's hiding behind there, and all of a sudden the relationship with God, it gets twisted. The relationship within their own hearts gets twisted. The relationship with the earth, now there's enmity even with the earth and with one another, and all of a sudden there's this picture of no longer like this or like this, there's like, they're like this. And then actually as it relates to the relationship between men and women, as a consequence of sin, the way it rolls out, God says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That word rule is not good. It means domination. It means subjugation. And don't we see that playing out today? And all of a sudden we have a picture, not by God's design, but by the result of this very early, the very original essence of power and a power grab. We see from this to that to now this. And then you name it, whether it's nation to nation, tribe to tribe, whether it's religion to religion, all through the course of humanity and all through the course of our, our history, through whatever the economy of your choice, through whatever the system of your choice, it's been one power play after another. And sometimes it's really ugly and sometimes it's really painful. But this power breeds and breeds and breeds in the New Testament the writer John, when he reflects on his, at the end of his life, and when he reflects on this whole thing, here's what he says. He says, the whole world, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. The whole world. And we see it played out 
and played out and played out in a macrocosm view, in a microcosm view. James Davison Hunter, in a book I've just started, it's called How to Change the World or To Change the World. Here's, here's what he writes kind of upon reflection. He says, the spirit that animates worldly power, whether held by individuals, social groups, communities, institutions, or social structures, naturally tends towards manipulation, domination, and control. Rooted in the deceptions of misdirected desire, it is a power that in its most coarse expressions would exploit, subjugate, and even enslave. Within a fallen humanity, all power is tainted, infected by the same tendencies toward self-aggrandizing domination. From intimacy and dominion to self-aggrandizing domination. And we come back to this passage. We come back to this call to walk not that way. Don't walk that way. Walk this way. What's that way? In very practical, concrete ways. That way is the way of love, Paul says. The way of love. Which has something to do about how we leverage power. Look back with me at Ephesians chapter 5. I just, I just want you to get a sense of this. We are to follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Now, really quickly, we're going to look at two things. That word gave himself up, but also who is Paul talking to? I think this is really, really important. Who is Paul talking to? Think about it for a second. Just to the extent that you have any idea, think about who's the primary target audience for Paul. He is talking to the most diverse, uh, polarized two groups, perhaps in human history, Jews and Gentiles, who have now, as it says in Ephesians, become one new humanity. This is a church, this is a community of people who are doing, I think, perhaps the most, the most uh, radical social experiment in history. How do you take Jews and Gentiles, Jews, the chosen people of God. Gentiles, the not chosen people of God. They wouldn't marry, they wouldn't intermingle, they wouldn't enter into one another's homes, they wouldn't eat food together, they wouldn't touch one another for fear of being uh, defiled. As Paul talks about it uh, in earlier parts of Ephesians, I'm just gonna grab from, from uh, this Bible here, just two reasons, one, because, um, because I just, there's something about like, this is in the Bible, like this is, this, this is here. There's this, this thing called this Bible, and, it, and it's from that that we get it on the screen, and also because my wife got me a large print Bible, and I can now read it on stage for Christmas. So, But just, just listen to how Paul describes their situation, that they were separate from Christ, that the Gentiles were excluded from citizenship, that they were foreigners, that they were without hope, that they were far away, that between the two groups, there was a barrier, there was a dividing wall of hostility. They were strangers, and yet Paul begins to say, but look, you're one new humanity. You're like a house built on this foundation. You're better than a house. You know what you are? You're a temple, like where, where we used to go to a synagogue or to the holy temple in Jerusalem where God dwells. He now dwells in you, Jews, Gentiles, together. This is so radical. Now imagine this. Imagine the power play of blending those two groups together. Different languages, different customs, different cultures, 
different religious backgrounds, different understandings. Imagine all the misunderstandings. Imagine all the ways this could have gone wrong. Imagine what's at stake for them. And as you're thinking about maybe your relationships where there's power at play and you think about all these things, if this could happen for the people of Ephesus and its surrounding churches, it can happen for you and me. And Paul says right into that context, right into the nitty gritty of that, he says, follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. And what are we to walk in? What does love look like? Here's the the relationship between love and power. Who's our example? It's God in Christ. What did he do for us? It's underlined for us. He gave himself up for us. That word gave himself up is paradokin in the Greek. And here's what it means. To hand yourself over. To hand yourself over. Now I want to be, we have to be careful here because a sermon is different than a counseling session, right? And so if you have been dominated, if there's a situation of domestic abuse, what we're not talking about is perpetuating the same thing. There's a place of very, in every relationship, for healthy, appropriate boundaries and the like. We're not talking about that. What we are, though, we're seeing in Jesus, the one who was the most powerful, who handed himself over. And as the audio clip said kind of rightly, but not quite rightly, to the, to the Romans. But it wasn't really the Romans who wanted to kill him. It was actually the Jewish leadership because he proclaimed to be God. And that's the proclamation of the early church. That God decided to hand himself over for us. In fact, most scholars believe the, most, the earliest um, writing the earliest kind of part of the New Testament, the most ancient kind of part that was written is found in another letter from Paul called Philippians. And it's found in the second chapter. And it's actually kind of a hymn, a hymn that the early church would sing that Paul took and wrote down and captured in what we now call the Bible. And I want you to look because this is really what they reflect on. And if we get anything out of today, like this is, this is my heart for us right here. Check this out. Philippians chapter 2. This is the song of the early church. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to notice this descent. Who, who is Christ Jesus? Being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you notice the ascent here? Christ Jesus, who is God, becomes human. But not just human. He could have come as like a conquering king or military hero. What did he come as? A servant, but not just any servant, 
Not innocuous. He actually was so misunderstood that he became what? A criminal. That's why people die on crosses in the time of Jesus, is when you're a criminal. From God to human to servant to criminal. Why? So that we can worship. So that we can be set free. Put it this way. God who is omnipotent became impotent because you and I were so important and he did it for our empowerment. And Paul says, do the same. God who is omnipotent chose lovingly to become impotent because you and I and all creation were so important, he did it for our empowerment. Go do the same. Go do the same. In other words... If the picture after sin and everything getting twisted with God, with self, with the earth and all creation, with one another, if the picture was this and this is God and here we are in our shame, in our hiding, in our blame, what did God do? Well, he could have done this. He could have done that. What did he do instead? I've showed this before. He became human. Became a servant. Became a criminal. He died on the cross. But on the third day, he abandoned the grave. So why? For your freedom and for your flourishing and for all creation. Isn't that beautiful? A God who is, who is always omnipotent chose lovingly to be impotent because you're so important. And he did this for your empowerment so that every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. That's how love and power goes away when we leverage our power for the sake of another. How might you do that? How might you leverage the power, the gifts, the resources the place you've been given or granted in life, the things where you are, the things that you have, we all have a certain power. How might you leverage it? Richard Foster would describe that when we use power in creative ways, it leads to amazing benefits in you and me. And the first he describes is love. Like this is when we, when we expend whatever power we have, that is one of the most beautiful expressions of love. That's what Paul says. This, if you're gonna follow God's example, walk in the way of love, give yourself up to. Number two, what happens in you and me when we expend our power for the sake of others? Humility, nothing is more beautiful. No, no virtue more attractive. Number three, limitation. Self-limitation, where we realize we are not our own God, just like we were tempted in the garden. Where we realize, I have actual limits and I'm gonna live within limits. The Bible might even call that a sense of self-control. Think about this for a moment, but this just struck me um, maybe an hour or two ago. Think about the limitation God chose when he created a free system called existence. That actually, when he gave us the freedom to choose, right, wrong, tree, no tree, fruit, no, no fruit, he was actually exercising limitation. He could have created an entirely closed system. 
But that's who God is. He didn't do that. And we live within a sense of self-limitation. Number, f- number four, when we expend our power, it provokes in you and me a joy. Instead of an arrows in, it, it becomes, as we love to say, an arrows out and nothing's more thrilling, nothing's more adventurous, and we're filled with joy, and that transcends even our circumstances. When it's a power grab, it's never enough. When it's a power grab, someone's always going to be higher or more on top of you. When it's a power grab, someone is always going to be more powerful than you. But when we look to flip jujitsu our power, when we look to do this, it releases us both to joy. Spiritual power, when expended, leads to a vulnerability. It puts us right back to here. I'm open before you. I'm accessible to you. I'm available to you. I'm fully present to you. And it might feel scary, and it could feel awkward, but this is how we most grow in our relationship together. And when we expend our spiritual power, it leads to this beautiful thing. It's another sermon. It could trigger you, but I'm telling you, it's so beautiful. We live in submission, beholden to God and beholden to our community. Where we go, I'm not my own authority, but I'm living a submitted life. And you know what that leads to? Freedom. Freedom for you. Freedom for the others that we most love. Freedom for those that God has placed us in and around. How will you leverage your power? I'll give you just a couple examples. Seth Davidson, our discipling pastor, two examples for Seth. It just, this blows me away about him. I'm, I'm just, I'm watching him so closely because there's, there's so much I can learn from him in this. But he was one of our church planners. We planted a church called Redemption uh, many years ago. They planted a church in Lawrence called uh, uh, Vintage. And Seth was a lead pastor and was, and was that for many years and he did a beautiful job. But at some point he came to this place where he said, I'm no longer fit for a number one as a lead pastor. I think I'm a number two and I need to hand off vintage, which he did to a guy named Deacon Godsey and that's still going and growing in the whole thing. And that's how Seth ended up back here. He kind of grew up here, but he came back as a number two, joined our management team. That's our senior leadership team. And uh, ultimately began to lead our entire kind of spiritual formation area of the church. So we'd sit on management team, and in effect, if you're talking in business terms, he was a VP over this, not how we talk, by the way, but he was a VP over an entire division of of our organization. Don't like that language, but hopefully this helps you understand what he did next in terms of leveraging his power. He began to talk to us as a team, talk to me when no one was asking, by the way, and said, I'm not sure that I'm most suited to sit on this team that I could actually be fully released if I served underneath. And so now, he serves underneath J. Cole. And we formed an entirely new team called the Activation Team. It's kind of our missions team, our spiritual formation team, our leadership development team. And Seth had the humility to leverage his power to say, I'm gonna come underneath a peer and I'm gonna serve. And I gotta tell you, what it's done for, for us as a staff, what it's done for this team, what it's done in terms of like clarity and alignment and all those things, but most importantly, what it's done in Seth 
I mean, let's bring those words, those characteristics back, back up from love to humility to limitation to joy. To I'm seeing all of those things in him. It's incredible. That's someone leveraging his power. I'll give you another example. Dr. Martin Luther King. This just stuns me. As Corey mentioned, I read a book called The Death of a King, which was about the last year of his life. And I just, I had no idea what he was up against. I had no idea about the, the, the bombs and the things thrown through his window, the threats on his wife and on his children, about all the ways that the power system kind of came up against him from, from a few and many different angles. There was the rise of militancy, the Black Panthers and the like. And actually... Donors within Dr. King's coalition, uh, followers, they were beginning to leave this nonviolent movement and join a more militant one. At the same time, Dr. King was like, hey, this isn't just a race issue, this is socioeconomic. He began to address poverty and say, this is about everyone. He began to kind of take on a different power. And all of a sudden, he's losing, quote unquote, his power. And he has to make a decision. People are encouraging him to change his ways, to move from nonviolence to violence, this, that, and the other. And he got, he got really clear that not only is there, as he would say, an immorality to the other way, but there's a better way in Christ. He actually says this. Look at this quote with me. This just, I just love this. He says, I've decided that on this question of nonviolence, I'm going to stand by it. I'm going to love in this beautiful because it's just lovely to love. I'm going to be nonviolent because I believe it is the answer to mankind's problems. I'm not going to bargain with reality, he says. I've taken a vow. I, Martin Luther King, take thee, nonviolence, to be my wedded wife for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. Everyone else was telling him, do this, do this, or stop doing this, stop doing that. He was like, no, I've been called by God from the very life of Jesus, the very teachings of Jesus, to subvert earthly power, the power that's under the control of the evil one, the scriptures say and leverage it for a spiritual power that leads to flourishing, that leads to freedom. How about you and your relationships? How about you? Where are you here? God is calling you here. Where are you here? And God is calling you on this beautiful joyride Descent to there. You know, we see this even as God designed the seasons. We're in winter right now. But every season gives way to the next. Every season has to give up its sense of power and, and splendor. Take fall, for example, so beautiful. But ultimately, those leaves must fall, those limbs must be led bare to make room for, yes, the dormancy of winter, but ultimately the flourishing, the budding of spring. We even see that in winter. I'm really excited about this. My, my oldest brother, Rob, Robert Diebel, uh, lives in Seattle. He's a therapist, family, family and marriage uh, therapist there. He's also a musician, has put out many, many albums and traveled and done all of those things. He happens to be in town this, this weekend. 
and I was asking him if he'd be interested to play. And Rob, I'll just ask you to come on up and, um, and get set up. He is, he's graciously not only agreed to play us a song, but also to lead us into our communion. But he began to talk about a song he wrote called The Colors of Dying, which is that very thing of even in the way our nature is expressed. There must be a giving up of oneself to make room for another. And so uh, my brother's going to play that song. And um, I just want to emphasize he's my older brother. <laughs> that we look very, very alike. And, um, and I'm very, very honored uh, to, have him, uh, to have him come and play. Here's what I want to do. I just want to ask you a question. And I want us to pray, and then Rob's going to lead us in the song. And then we'll take communion together. How will you leverage your power for the sake of the other? How will you follow God's example? This is the way of love. So Lord, we just say, would you bring to our minds pictures, names, faces, would you reveal to us the ways that you have given us so much that's not meant to be kept or hoarded for ourselves? How might we give ourselves away for the sake of the other, God? Would you show us as we listen, as we reflect, as we think about you, the one who is omnipotent, who chose lovingly to become impotent? Because we're so important to you. We are your loved kids, and you call us to empowerment for the sake of others. In Jesus' name, we're listening. Amen.
Light, light, and light. 